Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. Veganism, sort of culturally, is is seen as sort of quite fancy or posh. Gentrification as well. So, you know, vegan cafes opening up can have a sort of bad reputation for charging, you know, £15 for avocado on toast or something. Pretty much all common over-the-counter medicine will have a generic or own brand version that has the same active ingredients at the same dose, but costs a lot less. The tricky thing is with these uh, trackers is there is no kind of hard and fast rule. Where we see expensive ones that are great and cheaper ones that aren't so great, we also see the total opposite. It's the second week of January and it's still early enough, in my books at least, for New Year's resolutions to be made. It's probably also late enough for some of these to be broken. But whether you're all over New Year, New You messaging or you're more on the sceptical side, there's no denying January is practically synonymous with changing diets and getting fitter and healthier. So this week we've pulled together journalists from different areas at which to talk about some of the biggest ways to save money and traps to avoid when it comes to your health and fitness this year. Later, we'll get on to supplements and medicines, dentists and smartwatches. But first, let's start with food or more specifically, Veganuary. In 2021, half a million Brits signed up for it. It's the challenge run by the organisation of the same name that encourages you to go vegan for January and to then continue to cut down on meat and dairy past January or even stay meat free for good. And to start with, I'm joined now by Ian Aikman and Shafali Loth. Now, Shafali, With conversations on the climate crisis ramping up and COP26 just gone, it's no surprise really that even more people are signing up to Veganuary this year. Absolutely, Lucia. We know that food has a huge impact on the environment and foods such as meat and dairy have a higher carbon footprint than plant foods. Um, Mm -hmm. People are becoming more aware of this and they're trying to adapt or change the way they eat to include fewer animal products. Um, But, you know, you don't need to cut out all meat and dairy smaller incremental changes can also have a huge impact. For example, eating less meat and when you do eat it, eating meat that's produced to higher welfare standards, it's also a good stepping stone. I think, Ian, um, you're the closest we have to a vegan uh, on the episode today. You're vegetarian, right? Have you ever tried Veganuary? Yeah, yeah. So probably about uh, six years ago, I think, um, I did Veganuary with my partner. and We were vegetarians before that. Um, and I actually stayed vegan afterwards for about three mm. years uh, before wow. switching back. Wow! Um, yeah, and, and it did kind of change my diet and my my lifestyle even now. Uh, in that, I even though I am a vegetarian, I do mostly eat vegan meals still, uh, and I mostly cook meals from scratch, which is 
something I kind of learned to do during Veganuary that first time. Um, so yeah, you learn a lot of new recipes, eat a lot of new things. Uh, I, I recommend it. I thought it was great. Well, we'll hear some recipe tips uh, later on. But first, let's talk about the role cost plays in a switch to veganism. Because last year we surveyed a thousand people and 57% said a vegan diet would be more expensive than their own. It's interesting because as a non-vegan, when it comes to shopping, aside from alcohol or wine mostly, um, <laughs> meat products tend to be the most expensive in my basket. Um, Ian, why do you think the general consensus is that going vegan costs more? I'd say there's probably two factors here. Um, one of them is that is that veganism sort of culturally is is seen as sort of quite fancy or posh. Mm. I'm not saying it's necessarily true, but the kind of perception is it's sort of tied up with things like, you know, hipsters or, you know, younger right. people, um, gentrification as well. So, you know, vegan cafes opening up can have a sort of bad reputation for charging, you know, 15 pounds for avocado on toast or something. Mm. So I think there's that element there. And the other thing, perhaps could be the price of vegan meat substitute products over the years that people might have seen on the supermarket shelves, or especially what the prices used to be in the past, if you've just sort of looked at them in passing uh, over time. Because over the years, these have tended to be more sort of premium products from specialist brands, and not necessarily huge bargains. So is there any truth behind it then if we look beyond the kind of the the, the, the gloss of veganism, the, the fanciness, the hipsters? Definitely not as much as you might think. Uh, we've seen particularly over the last couple of years, more and more cheap vegan products coming on to the market. Uh, I've definitely noticed them and we've done some research to look at them as well. There's, there's now a much bigger range uh, in terms of the number of brands, uh, the kinds of uh, flavors and, and the prices. Uh, so most supermarkets now have own brand vegan products, which is definitely not something they had a few years ago when I was a committed vegan. Um, mm. But I certainly would have liked them because like most own brand products are cheaper. So recently we did some research where we looked at the price of some of these products. And just to give you a couple of examples of some of the cheapest, we found that you can get the Aldi meat-free sausages in a pack of six that works out about 17p for a sausage. And then from Asda, the plant-based vegan beef-style burgers worked out at 22p each. Pretty close. Yeah, like it's a long way from some of the more premium, um, mm. you know, ultra-realistic uh, type vegan products that, that that make headlines, you know, and they're sort of five pounds per burger. Um, and the thing is, our taste tests have actually found that some of these cheaper own brand products can be tastier than the expensive ones. Yeah, I suppose meat substitutes, they serve a purpose, don't they, if you're craving meat. But if you were to cut those from your diet, then would you be spending less as a vegetarian or vegan? Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't have to eat these uh, meat substitutes. And I certainly very rarely eat them, only occasionally. And I never used to eat them that much when I was a vegan either. And, you know, vegans I know don't necessarily you know, have a vegan sausage with every, with every meal. Um, you can use mm. all sorts of things instead, like, uh, you know, uh, chickpeas, lentils, uh, pulses, and these are usually really cheap. So so that is another reason, uh, like you say, that it doesn't have to cost too much to eat vegan at all, really. And I suppose there's something to be said here from a nutritional perspective too. I mean, speaking uh, from my own point of view, I have quite a low salt diet. And so all of these kind of meat substitutes, as well as the, the meat equivalents, kind of like the ham and sausages, those processed foods, I tend to avoid because they tend to be quite high in salt. Shafali, what's your opinion on kind of meat substitutes and their nutritional value? 
I do feel that they can have an important role in people's diets. For example, if you are moving from a meat-based diet to a more plant-based one, you know, these substitutes can act as a really useful stepping stone in you trying to adapt your diet. Um, However, which research in the past has shown that they're not necessarily healthier than their meat Mm. counterparts. Um, I think people think vegan food is immediately healthy. It has a health halo around it. But Mm. actually, our research has shown that often these burgers or sausages can contain just as much fat and salt as their meat substitutes or their meat counterparts. And actually, as Ian said, you know, you don't need to be eating these if you want to follow a vegan or plant-based diet. And actually, lentils, beans and pulses are a really, really good substitute. Um, They're fantastic sources of vegan protein. They're also high in fiber. Um, They're a vegan source of iron in the diet as well. So, you know, they provide lots of really important nutrients. And I think, you know, the hard thing is sometimes people struggle, they don't know what to do with a bag of lentils. And so it can almost be that that acts as a barrier. But um, tinned pulses are really easy to use. You know, they're already cooked, they're prepared, you can just open a tin, rinse off the water or the juice or whatever you want to call it and then stick them into a salad a stew um, replace half of your meat with beans or kidney beans or something like that in a chili um, or a bolognese just to get you started and let's hear some more on this we've also been speaking to vegan food expert mandy maslia for some of her top vegan cooking tips really to eat vegan food for a lower cost, you do need to be cooking for yourself. Ingredients like pulses and beans and lentils and things can be incredibly cheap. So for the cheapest option, you want to buy dried lentils and beans and you'd need to soak them overnight and cook them yourself. But even if you want to buy the pre-cooked ones in tins, that's still incredibly cheap. And there's so many things you can make from pulses. So chilies, dals, baked beans. So for example, take a tin of chickpeas sometimes get three for a pound in some of the cheaper shops for example you can make vegan tuna mayo sandwiches out of chickpeas if you go on google and google that you'll find loads of recipes you can roast them with different spices for a snack and they go really crispy on the outside you can blend them into dips like hummus you can even make sweet treats out of them for example blondies and cookies um on my blog sneaky veg i have a recipe for chickpea cookie dough with chocolate chips which is absolutely delicious And remember to be really money efficient, you can also save the water and that's called aquafaba and you can use it as an egg substitute. You can even make vegan meringues and pavlovas with it. In case you didn't catch it there, you can find Mandy's blog at sneakyveg.com. Some really fab tips in there. I really like the one to use the chickpea waste. I've always wanted to try that. Ian, is that one you've tried? Uh, No, it it isn't, but I I will try it now. Right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Ian. Okay, Ian, you've got an article on six ways you can have a cheap veganuary. We've already heard some of those tips creeping through. Can you tell us a few more? Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones I would say is just to shop at the cheapest supermarket. Um, You can save quite a bit of money uh, by shopping somewhere cheaper um, if you have a sort of range of supermarkets that are accessible to you. Um, So every month we do a bit of research to declare the cheapest supermarket of the month. Um, We do it for the whole year as well at the end of the year. Uh, I think the latest one we've got is for November 2021, Mm -hmm. and that was Aldi. Another one is to buy things in bulk. Um, So you can stock up on sort of 
vegan staples. So we talked about lentils. You can buy them in quite big bags and just sort of use them because they last for a really long time. Um, canned foods as well, uh, multi-buys on those are quite common. So you might be able to save money there in the long run. Uh, just make sure if you're doing this that you only buy things you're actually going to use. Uh, otherwise, you could actually end up overspending. Uh, but I, I'd say those are probably two of the biggest tips. We are which. Now, often in conversations about veganism, there's the question around whether you can get all the nutrients you need from diet alone. B12 is one that gets mentioned a lot, but really the bigger point here is whether whatever your diet, can you get everything you need from just your diet alone? Since the pandemic, there's been a huge push on how to boost your immune system and supplements have played a big part. I've got here that supplement sales in the UK rose by a massive 9% in 2020. So Shafali, are there any supplements we should be taking that are worth our money? So Lucia, you mentioned supplement sales rising hugely. And I think that's probably because everyone was so conscious about trying to boost their immune systems. Now, mm. vitamin D is a supplement that everyone should be taking, especially during the winter months in the UK. Um, extra attention around coronavirus um, raised its profile significantly, but vitamin D does play a really important role in our immune health, but also our bone health. Um, there are some nutrients that are harder to get in a vegan diet, and you mentioned B12 as one of these, mm. um, and that's because it's found mainly in animal products. Now, there are vegan sources of vitamin B12, such as Marmite or yeast extract, and also fortified breakfast cereals, but they are limited. And so if you are following a vegan diet, it may be worth considering taking a vitamin B12 supplement. Other nutrients that can be harder to get are calcium and iodine. Um, the main sources of these in our diet are dairy. So obviously, if you're not having animal dairy, cow dairy, then that's a big area that you're missing out on. So if mm. you are switching to a plant-based milk, make sure that therefore it's a fortified version, not an organic one, um, and make sure it's got calcium and iodine added. Iron's another one that can be a bit harder to get out of um, non-meat sources. But again, it is available in green leafy veg, broccoli, um, impulses, and also wholemeal bread and flour. So you mentioned a good handful there, but what about all the other supplements out there? Because shopping for them can be a bit of a minefield, can't it? There are so many claiming to solve all sorts, but there's a bit of a disjunct between what's claimed and what's proven. Why is that? So really, I mean... Ultimately, if you're eating a healthy, balanced diet, it should provide all of the nutrients that you need. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, no supplements a good enough substitution for eating well. Um, there are some circumstances where supplements are necessary, as we already talked about. Um, now, if you're looking at food supplements, and that's your vitamins and mineral supplements, um, all health claims on them have gone through a, quite a rigorous process where the evidence has, has been assessed and then approved by an independent panel. Um, so if you're buying a reputable supplement brand, um, it's unlikely to be carrying a misleading health claim. Mm -hmm. Now, there are other supplements such as botanical supplements. So here I'm thinking about um, St. John's wort or garlic or turmeric supplements. 
The health claims on botanical supplements haven't been assessed in the same vigorous way that they have on traditional supplements. So those, you know, may not be as reliable. So we've heard a few that we might want to think about taking, but are there any standout supplements that you think we should avoid? Um, Overall, I would say you should avoid supplements that contain too much of something. So with vitamins and minerals, these are substances that have been hugely investigated and researched, and there's a lot of evidence behind them. We also know around how much we need to have on a daily basis of those. So if you see a supplement that contains 100% of your recommended daily amount or your RNI, it's often labeled as your reference nutrient intake, then I would say avoid those because actually you have to think that you are getting some of those nutrients out of the food that you're eating as well. And you don't want to take too much on because This is a case where more isn't necessarily better. There are some nutrients that actually, if you have too much of them in your body, can cause quite severe side effects. And what about how we take supplements? They can vary so much in cost. And this is something we'll get onto with medicines later on. So with supplements, is it ever worth going for anything other than a regular tablet? So actually, I feel that there's been a huge increase in the variety of supplements available on the shelves in the last few years. Um, Whereas before you'd get a simple tablet or a capsule, now we can get gummies and sprays and there's even tea bags and infusions. Um, And actually, at the end of the day, a simple tablet is always going to be the cheapest option. And most of the time, the evidence shows it's just as effective. An example of this is Mm -hmm. vitamin D. Um, An own brand high street supermarket or high street pharmacy vitamin D tablet costs about 3p a day, whereas a vitamin D spray is about 7p a day. So, you know, more than twice Mm -hmm. as much. Now, those aren't a huge amounts, but when you think you're taking it for the year or at least six months, that all adds up. And And for a household as well, if you're feeding a, a family. Absolutely. So actually, you know, evidence has shown that a spray is not more effective than a tablet when taking vitamin D. I mean, If you don't like taking tablets and you think you're more likely to stick to a spray, then of course there is a benefit in that. But if you think it's more effective, then it isn't. We are which. Now I'm joined by witch health journalist Anna Studman. And while we're on this point of what form to take supplements in, what's your advice here for medicine, Anna? Does there tend to be a cheapest way to take it? Yes. So the simplest advice and advice that we give quite often at which is to go for an own brand or generic version of the medicine that you want. So Mm -hmm. pretty much all common over-the-counter medicines from painkillers to cold and flu and nasal spray will have a generic or own brand version that has the same active ingredients at the same dose but costs a lot less. So, for example, a generic pack of ibuprofen costs about five times less than a pack of regular Nurofen, but they're the exact same thing. Why are they sold at such different prices? Well, it sort of comes down to 
the fact that pharmaceutical, big pharmaceutical companies who own and patent brand name medicines have to shoulder those expenses of developing and marketing new drugs in the way that manufacturers that sell generic drugs don't have to do. So they can just sell the drug once the patent has expired. Um, And big medicine brands have large advertising budgets. So a lot of it comes down to that as well. So you just mentioned ibuprofen. Um, Can you give us some more examples? One that really stood out to me in your article was honey. Can you tell us what that was a substitute for? Yeah, so that was if you're buying cough syrup, then actually the advice that we got from pharmacists was just to swap it out for warm water and honey instead. Wow. Um, And actually, there's really not that much evidence to support cough syrup that you buy in the pharmacy and that honey actually might work a bit better. The only obvious caveat to that is that obviously honey is quite high in sugar. So you've got to keep an eye on that when when you're taking it as well. Can you give us a few more examples? Yeah, so savings can really add up for things that you take regularly, like hay fever tablets. So if you're taking one a day over a month, it can cost about £10 for a branded product like Pirates, but it only costs about pound fifty for the same thing um, as a generic tablet. And if, if you're considering a cheaper version of a medicine that you usually take, how can you tell if it is the same thing? So you can usually tell just by looking at the active ingredients and the dose on the pack. So ibuprofen, 200 milligrams, for example. Um, mm-hmm. But you can also check something called the product license number, which will be somewhere in the fine print, probably on the pack on the side of the box. Um, and it'll be a number with PL in front of it. So if those two numbers are the same on two different packs, you know that it's the same drug. You can always ask the pharmacist if there's a generic version of a branded medicine that you're taking and get their advice on that as well. So let's say you've got two boxes, they have the same. So let's say you've got two boxes uh, of medicine and they have the same active ingredient, but could they still be different? Yes, so there can be differences between generics and branded medicines that might be important to people. So things like the size, shape and coating of a tablet and also the non-active ingredients. So if you're allergic to lactose, for example, some pills might have lactose as a non-active ingredient. Or if you have trouble swallowing pills, then you might want to go for a formulation, a specific branded formulation that, you know, dissolves in water or something. So it's always just best to double check with your pharmacist. Yeah. Continuing on money saving health tips, another big switch that could save you tens or hundreds, potentially even thousands of pounds is opting for an NHS dentist over private. Now, Anna, what kind of difference would we be talking about, say, for a checkup and hygienist appointment? Things I'm sure many of us should have coming up. I know I'm a little overdue. Yeah, I'm definitely overdue as well. Mm. Um, So... NHS dental prices fall into three bands depending on the treatment. So for a checkup in England, that would be band one, which is about £23.80. It differs around the UK. So in Wales, it's about £14.30. And then in Northern Ireland, it ranges from about £7 to £22. Quite a difference. Yeah. In Scotland, it's free. So um, So we'll move up to Scotland. (laughs) Exactly. But 
If you're going private for a checkup, prices range quite significantly. So it could be from about £30, quite similar to the NHS price, up to around £120. Okay, so there's a lot of savings again to be had here. How should you go about getting an NHS dentist? Well, that is the golden question. I think a lot of people might be finding it tricky at the moment because there's a backlog um, due to obviously COVID. Um, During the first lockdown, dentists weren't able to do routine appointments. And I think dentistry is still feeling the impact of that. There's no easy answer. I think it's a bit of a postcode lottery. So we know that some areas of the UK are facing a lot longer waits for NHS appointments than others. Mm. I did see, I saw recently, um, it was on Cornwall Live that one parent uh, said that they just put their one-year-old on the waiting list and he won't have his first dental appointment until he's six years old, which is bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, that seems outrageous. (laughs) That's certainly an extreme example, Mm -hmm. I'd say. So if you do have a long wait list, I mean, are you able to change your catchment area or kind of go a bit further? Yeah, so you can ring around and find out um, which dentists are taking new NHS patients on. Personally, I found I tried to join a new NHS practice and they weren't taking new patients so just had to stick Mm -hmm. with my practice but it's probably worth ringing around and seeing if different practices are taking new NHS patients. So let's say you've you've rung around some local practices and none of them are taking uh, any patients on anytime soon and you're on a long waiting list but you've got tooth pain what can you do then? Yeah, so dentists that I've spoken to have been careful to stress that, you know, if you're in a lot of pain, that can be indicative of a serious problem. Mm -hmm. And you can try and get an emergency appointment. So it's a sort of different track to a regular appointment waiting list. And now for the final part of today's episode, and we have Witches Becky Jakeman with us to talk about one of the most popular Christmas presents in 2021, wearable health tech, or in other words, Apple Watches, Fitbits, Garmin's, any other fitness trackers or smartwatches that monitor your steps, activities, heart rate, among plenty of other things. Now, Becky, I can't say I've joined the masses on this one yet, but I've often found myself looking at smartwatches from some of the bigger brands only to be put off by their price tag in the hundreds. But which recently tested a bunch of really inexpensive ones costing between just six and 28 pounds. So how did they do? Yes, so we put these more inexpensive models through kind of a pared down version of our test program just to see how Mm. they got on. And sadly, the answer is not the one I wish I could give you. And that was that that they did brilliantly. Uh, Unfortunately, they did not. So the situation with that was it kind of depends entirely what you're looking for a wearable device to do. So what we Mm -hmm. did find that pretty much all of them were good at counting your steps. Okay. So basically a glorified pedometer that you can wear on your wrist. Mm-hmm. But I mean, for the sake of a tenor, you could make worse purchases. Mm-hmm. However, any of them that claimed to do any kind of more advanced monitoring, so that's things like your heart rate, or some of them claim to track your sleep if you wore them overnight as well, they were not very reliable at all. So they weren't able to pick up when we'd gone to sleep. They weren't able to pick up kind of the right heart rates at the right times, which isn't very helpful. Mm. 
could be quite worry, I suppose, as well. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? These things always kind of come with a bit of a bit of worry, especially if they don't work properly. Mm. So if you're working out and it's telling you your heart rate is a lot lower or a lot higher than it should be, it's probably going to stress you mm. out, especially if you're fairly new to it. So not ideal. And um, a lot of the the smartwatches and trackers we test normally are able to pick up when you start exercising. So they'll send you a little message and say, oh, it looks like you're going for a walk. Would you like us to record it? But none of these were able to do that. So yeah, our kind of takeaway from that whole thing was if you're just looking for something super basic, you might be able to get away with just picking something up really cheaply. But if you're looking for anything kind of at the more advanced end of the scale, you're probably going to have to spend that little bit more. I mean, it doesn't sound too bad because I think a lot of people do just want to count steps. That's something I bought my mum a, a smartwatch for, really. I mean, it has other it has other features, but she's not checking them, I don't think, <laughs> to be quite honest. So with these more expensive models, how reliable do they tend to be? They might pick up that you started to do a different activity, but, but generally speaking, do they tend to be more accurate and, and live up to their claims? So the tricky thing is with these uh, trackers is there is no kind of hard and fast rule. So mm. like with a lot of other things you might buy, there's no way of saying kind of, oh, if you spend more, if you buy this particular brand, it's more likely to be accurate. So where we see expensive ones that are great and cheaper ones that aren't so great, we also see the total opposite. So it is difficult to make kind of that hard and fast distinction. What we do see with the pricier models is normally more advanced features rather than increased accuracy. So, for example, if you're looking to uh, check the amount of oxygen in your blood, if you like kind of high altitude sports like skiing or snowboarding, a lot of people find that feature useful. Mm. Uh, keen golf fans, there are specific watches where you can track your distance to the next hole and you can keep track of your golf score. Very niche, very niche. You're not sure um, I'd be able to use that one, but... Yeah, not useful for everyone, not <laughs> for everyone but, but those that have it, love it. Yeah, you tend to pay more money for kind of those more niche features and sometimes you're paying specifically for a brand Hmm. i like apple i've got an iphone so in in my eyes it was like oh well i have to get the apple watch and complete the set so i think yeah you're not alone in that one i'm sure (laughs) yeah i don't think i am i don't think i am and i think you see a similar thing with samsung users and the samsung watches But yeah, I would say there's there's very little correlation between kind of price and accuracy of these things. So you really have to consider whether you need those advanced features. And I think there is this idea that with fitness trackers or good fitness trackers, they'll encourage you to adopt healthier habits, get your steps in, be more active, sleep a bit more. But there is that danger that you could just end up using it as, as a glorified watch or a second phone for notifications. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So I think it really depends on your mindset here. So if you're already of quite an active mindset and you like getting out and about, then a fitness tracker or a smartwatch is probably only going to enhance what you're already doing. 
So mm. you, I hear of people being kind of hooked on the data. So they love wearing it to go cycling because, oh, they want to get this specific route a little bit quicker or they want to get up this hill with slightly more speed. I'm speaking with no experience because I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think if if you've already kind of got that fitness bug, then these are great. They're a great kind of companion to take out with you and they're only going to enhance what you do. However, if you're kind of getting it because you've seen an advert mm. and you think, oh, that looks really cool, then I think you're right. You can often just end up using it. I mean, I've used my smartwatch to make phone calls mm-hmm. where I've not done any exercise for the whole day and that's literally all <laughs> I've used it for. But um, has it told you that you haven't done any exercise? Because that's a good thing as well. Yes. So I think with most of them, you can normally kind of choose how annoying you want it to be. So (laughs) how much you want it to bug you. So mine every hour will say, oh, have you stood up this hour? Try and stand up, try and walk around. Um, And I can turn those off if I want to. But I do also find them quite useful because it gets me up and away from my desk. Yeah, I know that that would really catch me out because I can sit for hours. Um, So I do feel like I probably would benefit quite a lot from one of these. It is very handy. It also uh, gives me breathing reminders when I get stressed. So when it feels my heart rate go up, it goes, take a minute to breathe, which sometimes (laughs) when you're stressed isn't the best reminder to get. But um, other times it it is very useful. So yeah, I think it's entirely... Your, your reasoning behind buying this thing, if you're buying it to be an extra phone, some of them are marketed as a phone on your wrist. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's what you want to use it for, then power to you. But yeah, kind of fitness fiends will definitely get a lot out of them for sure. Thank you so much to Shafali, Ian, Anna and Becky for coming on the show and to you for listening to this week's episode of the Witch Money Podcast. And it's that time again for a little bit of housekeeping. Just to ask you, if you haven't already, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. They're so helpful to get our podcasts heard. And if you have a question on anything we've mentioned, pop it in there and we can try and address it in a later episode. Plus, you can also find us on social media at Witch Money and for more money news and advice online at witch.com co.uk forward slash money this episode of the witch money podcast was recorded by rob lilly produced and edited by rob with additional support from ian aikman 